All right, we are continuing on in our series, um, Defending Our Faith, our apologetic series. As I mentioned last week, this week we're going to actually um, deal with the, the idea is, was God or was Jesus God, or you could actually cross that out and say, is Jesus God, because he is alive, so we don't want to necessarily refer to him in the past tense, but... Um, is Jesus God? Now that seems like a silly question for those of us that are sitting here this morning because I sure hope that everyone here understands, accepts, and believes that Jesus is God. But because we're looking at defending those beliefs and those concepts among those around us, it's important for us to study that and to come up with some ways to be able to dialogue about that. And... Um, so we're going to do that today as we look at knowing what the real challenge is, knowing what the world thinks around us, knowing the truth, and then knowing how to respond. I'm going to talk a little bit about a study that George Barna released in 2015. George Barna is a Christian researcher, researches not only the church, but ideas and concepts outside the church to help us sort of understand what's going on in our culture around us. And it gives us a good picture of what people believe on this particular subject. Now again, this is 2015, so only two, two years ago. It has to do with Americans and their understanding of who Jesus was. According to Barna, 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Which is actually pretty good, because when you live in a culture and society where so much of Christianity is being downplayed and called fiction, it's good to know that still a large majority of Americans actually believe that he was real. But this is where it now begins to take a bit more sour turn, if you will. If you look at millennials, who are the millennials? Anybody know who the millennials are? Sort of that younger generation right now that we hear about. Well, among millennials, only 87% believe that he was real. So it drops from the average Americans all the way down to 87% for millennials. How many of those do you suppose, or how many of, uh, say, the overall population, how many of those do you think that uh, they believe Jesus was actually God, not just a human being? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Just throw out a number. How many do you think actually thought Jesus was probably God? What's that? It's going there. Uh, about 56%, according to Barna. Only 56% of Americans believe that Jesus is God. Now, that's not all that shocking, considering the number of Christians is probably less than that. But millennials, it drops to 48%. Another statistic here, only 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was sinless. So 52% believe that he was sinless. Among millennials, only 44% believe that Christ was sinless. So we already begin to see that the picture of Jesus goes from basically, well, he's a real person, to, well, he's not God, to, well, he really wasn't sinless. Probably the statistic that um, kind of surprised me the most, about 46% of millennials claim to have made a personal relationship decision for Jesus Christ. I think that's a little high, but when Barna surveyed millennials, Inside and outside the church, 46% on average said that they had made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. But only half of those, so basically about 25% of millennials, believe that that commitment to Jesus Christ would actually save them from hell. Which means, what are they believing? So again, about half or 46% of millennials claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but only about half of them think that it will make any difference with eternity. So we can see that the shift, what the population is thinking. Now, what do you suppose will happen 15, 20, 30 years from now as that millennial population ages? Right. Fewer and fewer people in the population will believe that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. So that's our challenge. Um, 
There are many things as we look around the world religions today, there's already varying views on this. Catholicism follows the same line of thinking that we do. They follow what's called the orthodox view, which is that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was sinless. But when you get into something like Mormonism, things start to change. Mormonism is kind of complicated. Mormons believe in the existence of more than one God. They believe that Jesus is just one of God. They worship God the Father. They also worship Jesus the Son. But they don't believe that Jesus was pre-incarnate with the Father, so there's some weird ideas with what they believe. They reject the Trinity. We talked about that a little bit. Um, they claim to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they say that salvation is found in Christ. But they believe that salvation, salvation is ultimately their becoming gods just like Jesus. So basically what Jesus is, Jesus is just another created being by God who escalated and became a god. And that's the promise for every Mormon. And the reason I bring up the Mormons is because, you know, we think about... Um, Mitt Romney running for president and how that sort of brought Mormonism to the front, if you will. Um, we have others, Jehovah Witnesses, who have varying ideas of Jesus. If um, you've ever had a Jehovah Witness come to your door before, they will say things like, well, Jesus was a son of God, but not the son of God, because he's one of many. Anybody remember what Islam believed about Jesus? We talked about that last week a little bit, didn't we? What are, what are they? What, how do they refer to Jesus? Anybody remember? They use a particular word to refer to Jesus. He was a what? He was a prophet. Yeah, they don't believe that Jesus was God. That's blasphemy to them. They believe he's a good person, um, did good things. He was wise, but he definitely wasn't the Son of God because he's not deity. They believe that he was crucified. They do not believe that he was crucified. They don't believe that he died. Remember, they think that maybe somehow he was replaced on the cross or something else. You know. Um, some weird mysticism there, but that's important because, remember, it's the fastest growing religion in the world, and by probably 2060 will be the largest religion in the world. And what's somewhat scary about that is to refer to Jesus as a god is blasphemy. So what do you suppose may happen when um, the Muslim uh, population is the most dominant population on earth, and when many of them believe, or many of the you know um, groups believe in Sharia law and other things, and punishing those who disparage their prophet or their their God and other things, so that's kind of what we have to look forward to, folks. Judaism, well, they think Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Hinduism, Buddhism, all have varying ideas on Jesus as well. So what we're basically up against here is Christians are pretty much the only ones in the world that believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Not only that he was God, but that he was sinless. So that's what we're up against. Um, in some respects, people think we're a little bit loopy in our minds if we believe that Jesus was God. So, what's the truth? Well, like I said, it's a little silly for us to even, I think, question it to some degree because we wouldn't be sitting here if we didn't believe that Jesus was God. But how can we respond? In other words, how can we know, or how can we share some things with them that might help us to build our case? How can we defend what we believe? There's a number of proofs I'm going to point out. I'm going to pull out seven different proofs or evidence that I believe, when you put them together, demonstrate that Jesus Christ was not only God, but was sinless as well, that he was who he claimed to be. Okay? So there's actually reason behind what we believe. God does not believe, does not expect us to simply believe something for the sake of believing it, but he's provided us with evidence of why Jesus is God. And again, the thing we have to be careful with these proofs is when, sometimes when we, when we think, and I'll prove it to you, we think that, you know, one statement, one thing, absolutely lock tight, prove it. Most of the time, proofs aren't that way. Most of the time, 
proofs are simply arguments that you use, evidence you provide, and as you put that those proofs together, you build a case. And the evidence becomes overwhelming when you do that. So if you can if you say, I have one thing that can prove Jesus is God, it's unlikely. But if you say there are seven different things, evidences that all point to the fact that Jesus Christ is God, the evidence becomes overwhelming. And that's really the goal here. So we're going to look at those things. So the first one, the first proof, if you will, that Jesus is God, is his birth. Now, I'm going to try to do some interaction here again, um, especially with you kids. With each one of these proofs, I'm going to try to ask you, why do you think it is that proof becomes an evidence for him being God? So what is it about Jesus' birth? Anybody have an idea of why that might be evidence that Jesus was God? I know nobody wants to say anything because you don't want to be wrong, you know. And you're all kind of gone, I don't know if the candy's worth it or not. I don't know if the, the you know, Reese's cup is really worth it, but maybe a Smarties. That might be worth it. What's well, they can't get better candy. Yeah. They're going to start saying, start handing out wits, you know. I'll bring in a big tub of wit. You know, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to just actually take this whole thing and hand it to Aiden because he's the only brave one in here and he's just going to eat, start eating out of it. But uh, why do you think the birth is so important? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Because the, Jesus, the birth of Jesus itself is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it was unique. You think about it. You know, he didn't have a, a, an earthly father. He had an earthly mother, but not an earthly father. So those things, if those things are all true, that's evidence that he was who he said he was, because it was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be born to a virgin. If you look at, um, turn to Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen, for me. Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. Can I get a volunteer to read that for me out loud? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Addie, I'm going to have you read it in just a second here. I need another volunteer for um, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Does anybody want to turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2 for me? Okay. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Jackie, I'll have you read that in a second. But Addie, I want you to go ahead and read for me Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is not only was it prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it happened, but it was specifically said how it would happen. A virgin would, be, would become pregnant, would give birth to a son, and they would name, his, name him Emmanuel. Now, what's the word Emmanuel mean? What does that name mean? Yeah. Yeah, it actually means God with us. So if Jesus is God with us, what does that make him? God with us, right? Jackie, go ahead and read your passage. Okay, now that's important because it names the city. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. So the Old Testament prophecy said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born to a virgin. He'll be called God with us, which his name Jesus is actually the, the, the you know, it's based off of God's name from the Old Testament. So we see all of that take place with Jesus and his birth. Now there's all kinds of other prophecies related to the birth of Christ, all of which came true in Christ. The other thing about the passage that uh, Jackie just read with Micah is that it says that he was from long ago, from days of eternity. What that means is that Jesus Christ is eternal. In other words, he, he, he existed prior to his birth. 
Which means he has to be either God or an angel, right? Because those are the only ones that exist in that realm, if you will. So, Jesus' birth is a proof that he was God. Now, there's two other passages. I'll just read them briefly. Mary was told by the angel that her child would be holy and the Son of God. Listen to what Luke wrote. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. One last one. Jesus declared that he, or John declared that Jesus was the Son of God. You all saw this passage last week. It's probably one of the most famous ones from the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then look at what happens in verse 14. The Word became flesh. He was born to a virgin. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the first proof that Jesus is the Son of God is what happened with his birth. The fact that it was prophesied, it was prophesied in detail and specifics. We were told in the Old Testament, this will be God coming to earth in the flesh who will walk among you, will die on your behalf and save you from your sins. So the first proof that Jesus is God is that it was prophesied and his birth demonstrates that to us. Now I think that's important because it hasn't ever happened before. It's the only time it's ever happened. It's unique. All right? Only God could actually do that. Let's go on to the second proof. The second proof is that he led a sinless life. Now, anybody want to venture to guess why that might be important? Yeah, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, think about it, guys. What is the problem with all of us human beings? We all sin. We all sin. The Bible makes that that we all sin. We're all sinful human beings. In fact, in many respects, we can't not do it. Let me ask you this. You don't have to raise hands. Though, I, you know, I probably would take somebody to wits if they raised their hands on, the, hands on this one and answered. But when was the last time you sinned? When was the last... Yeah, he wants wits. When was the last time you were able to say, I'm just going to stop sinning and not do it anymore, and that it came true? We have this propensity to sin, don't we? Human beings, I'll say it frankly, are nasty people. Okay? We do that. And except for the grace of God, that's all we would do. We'd be mean to each other, we'd be nasty. Remember what happened before the flood? Why did God have to destroy the earth? Basically, he said, the text tells us the earth was filled with violence. Every inclination of man's heart was wickedness. And the fact that God had to look down on his creation and completely destroy it as the only alternative tells us something about the wickedness of mankind. And yet, in that, you have one individual who wasn't. Something unique about that. How is that possible? Well, the scriptures tell us it's not possible if you are only human. The fact, the, the fact is that Jesus wasn't only human. He was human, but he was also God in the flesh. And so that made it possible for him to not sin. You remember when he went out into the wilderness, tempted by the devil. 
Every single time the devil tempted him, he tempted him in three ways, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And every time Jesus answered it by turning to the scriptures, refused to give in, refused to act on his own will, his own, if you will, that, that human side that says to do it of your own will and volition, and instead, he chose not to sin. Okay? Let's look at a couple of scriptures, or a couple of passages of scriptures. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says this, He, or who, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's a description of Jesus. Somebody turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Can I get one volunteer to read that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm going to go ahead and you do it. And then Nora, I'm going to have you read another one for me. Can you turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Two more passages that shed light on the sinless nature of Christ. Tell me when you're there. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.21, nice and loud for us. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteous of God in him. Right. So, Paul in 2 Corinthians said that Jesus' sinlessness not only was a fact, but it allowed him to do something for us. It made us, when we come to Christ the righteousness of God in him. In other words, we receive the righteousness of God. So it says that he doesn't he didn't know sin. That word that for know there means to be intimately familiar with. In other words, he didn't experience sin. What he experienced was temptation. But temptation without sin. What was the other one? Um, Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen. Go ahead and read that for us, Nora. So again, he was tempted in all ways that we are, but he didn't sin. Now, it's a hard concept, a hard theological concept. You get into the debates where people say, well, if he really could Jesus sin, if he really wanted to sin. Because if he really couldn't sin, then he really truly wasn't being tempted, and he really wasn't... You know what? There are just some things, folks, that are fruitless to debate. The reality of it is, Jesus was tempted. We're told he was tempted. And we're told that he was tempted and experienced everything that we do. Which means the temptation to sin was real. But he chose not to sin. So yes, he was fully human, could fully experience temptation. But he did it without sin because, as the scriptures indicate, he was God. What's interesting about this is, even the people around Jesus recognize something unique about him. John chapter 8, verse 46. I'll go ahead and I'll read this for you. John chapter 8, verse 46. It's not just the Bible that's, Bible itself that declared him to be sinless, but uh, others recognize that around him. He was recognized by his peers, if you will, as a morally superior individual. They couldn't find anything to stick on him, is the best way to describe it. John chapter 8, verse 46 and following. Jesus said this to his accusers, the Jews. Which one of you convicts me of sin? In other words, go ahead, lay it out there. Which one of you is accusing me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear him or hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, 
Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jew said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify my Father, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me and whom you, of you say, or who, who among you says, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, or I, do not know him I would be a liar like you, but I do, not, or do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and have not seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... Born I am. Look at what they did, verse 9. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Now what's the point of that passage? Jesus basically said, go ahead, tell me where I'm sinning. They couldn't answer him. Instead, they get all upset and they try to stone him for blasphemy, claiming he was God. That was it. The only thing they could accuse him of was claiming to be God. Why? Why? Because he lived out the law perfectly. They tried over and over and over to accuse him of being a lawbreaker and violating the Sabbath, but every time their arguments fell short. And so all they could do was accuse him of blasphemy. How about Pilate? Anybody, I won't have you turn here, but Luke chapter 18. Anybody remember what Pilate said when the Jews were trying to get Pilate to convict Jesus? What did he say? Yeah, I, can, I, I, I can't do it. There was nothing Jesus had done in his eyes that he could convict him of. And knowing who Pilate was, the only option wasn't put him on a cross and kill him. There were other options. But he didn't even find Jesus guilty enough in those other things to even try any of those other options. In other words, there was nothing. He wanted to release him. There was nothing that he had done. He recognized, I believe, his moral character. How about turning to Luke chapter 23 with me? Luke chapter 23. Can I get somebody to read Luke 23, verse 39 through 43? Any adult want to read that for me? No? It's like pulling teeth. Luke chapter 23. I love this one. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Thieves on the cross. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other thief answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So here you've got this thief hanging on the cross that recognizes that there was no sin in Christ. And so what we have is this this man who walked the planet named Jesus, who wasn't like any other man. Morally, in his character, he led a sinless life. And it's not only the Bible that declares that to be the case, 
but it gives us an indication as to how those perceived him around him. Now again, the Jews tried to accuse him of sin, but nothing could stick. That's a little bit different. That's like when God's righteous are always accused, right? The world accuses us of all kinds of things, even when we're right. Even when we behave normally and naturally. Think about any time we declare the things that we believe as it comes to marriage and other things. They accuse us of being bigots and all kinds of stuff, right? Just because they accuse us doesn't necessarily make it true, right? But the reality of it is Jesus was sinless, and so that is a second proof that he was God, because only God could be sinless. Because that's just not in our nature to be sinless. How about a third proof? The third proof for me is that Jesus actually said that he was God. Now, he might not have used that exact word or phrase, look, okay, I'm God, I'm the great Jehovah, but he declared himself to actually be God. Look at John chapter 8, verse 58 with me. What's significant about this is people will say all the time, those who try, those, I'll say those within the, and I'll put it in quotes, um, the atheists or even some what I'll call nominal Christians, I don't believe they're necessarily saved, that will argue that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. You'll hear that. Jesus never said, I'm God. He never claimed it. Well, they don't know the scriptures. John chapter 8, verse 58 says this, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, why is that important? Anybody remember the burning bush? And Moses said, Okay, if you want me to go to the Jews, if you want me to go to um, the Pharaoh, the world's largest superpower at this time, and explain that I'm supposed to take the Jews out, you got to tell me, who do I tell them to send me to do this? And the response he got was, I am. Just tell them I am. That's what it is. Refers to the self or the, the self-existent God Yahweh. It was probably Jesus in the bush, to be real frank, because the purpose or the role of Christ was always to make the Father known, and so all of the Old Testament theophanies were God appears, if you will, um, in some physical form on earth, are generally the work of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So he basically, in this passage, says, "That's me." Before Abraham was. That, that was me. I was the one in the bush. It's a declaration of being God. How about John chapter 12, verse 45? John 12, verse 45, says this. He who sees me, sees the one who sent me. That's important because, again, Jesus' role was to reveal the Father. When Jesus came, he came to do the will of the Father, to speak the words of the Father. Everything he did was under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate what the Father wanted communicated. And so he basically said, when you see me, you see the Father. Completely. Holy. Everything about the Father can be seen in Jesus Christ in terms of who he was, his character, his holiness, his righteousness, his will, his desires, his judgment, his mercy. Compassion. All those things are seen in Christ. Because the purpose of Christ was to reveal the Father to everyone else. How about John chapter 14, verse 9? We see a very similar phrase. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. He's talking to the disciples. For now on, 
you know Him and have seen Him. In other words, everything you need to know about the Father, Philip, anything you need to know, look at me. Just look at me. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, if you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the Father. And it's because he's God. I'll read this to you, John chapter 14, or 17, verse 5. Now the Father, um, now Father, this is Jesus praying. Now Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. Jesus even spoke about his pre-existence. That he existed prior to the world being formed. How is that possible if he wasn't God? We'll go ahead and move on to the fourth proof. The fourth proof is that Jesus could control nature. Now, anybody want to help me out? Why is that one important? How is the fact that Jesus could actually control nature a proof that he was God? Yeah. Yeah. Which one of you guys have ever been able to control nature? Anybody want to volunteer? Come on, the adults. One of you adults. Nate's an engineer. Randy's an engineer. You guys certainly... No? Now, can we manipulate nature in any way, form, or fashion? You know, like they talk about cloud seeding and something. No. We really, I mean, face it, guys. Humans can't control nature, right? But the one who created nature can. Matthew chapter 28. Anybody remember what happened when Jesus was out on the boat? What happened on the boat? All the guys got seasick. Why? Because the boat's moving and shaking. There's a storm. What does Jesus basically do? Yeah. Stands up. Calms the storm down, right? Calms it down. It's another example. Anybody have another example of Jesus controlling nature? There's a bunch of them. Number two in my notes. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus actually walked on the water. Now, I've seen David Blaine walk on water before. Anybody else? Have you ever seen a magician walk on water? Yeah, a little plastic, invisible platform that he walks on. Makes it look like he walks on the water, right? No. David Blaine, nobody else can actually walk on the water. Now, there are some little spider bug things that can walk on water, okay? Because they were created to do that. But I'd, we've got, Anybody want to volunteer? We've got this little lake out here, this little river thing here. Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah, Katie, go right ahead. How about another another example of Jesus controlling nature? Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is, the question would be, who actually split the Red Sea? Moses? I, well, Moses was there, but in all likelihood, might very well have been Christ. Because again, he was revealing something about the Father there in terms of protection and others. So very well could be, yeah. Okay. Um, did he ever do anything with, did he go fishing? Did he do anything, anything he done with fish? The, yeah, he actually made all the fish when Peter was out. You know, they're out there fishing and, you know, they're not getting squat and what happens. You know, he says, oh, put the, put the net back over there. And you imagine what he must, Peter must have thought. Yeah, right, throw the net. I've been out here all day. I'm not going to get any more fish. What kind of an idiot would tell me to go out there and put more? What did he do? <laughs> Throws it, and certainly all of a sudden, so much fish that the nets are breaking. Okay? What about, um, anybody remember 
When it came time to pay taxes, how about how how Jesus paid the tax for the Romans? This guy, come on. Coin in the fish's mouth. How do you suppose that happened? Right? Now, certainly a fish could pick up a coin, but how in the world could that be orchestrated? You know? Anybody here decide they need some extra, you know, cash? Just decide to go out to the, you know, oh, do some fish I'll pick. Oh, sure, I'm going to catch something. A fish has got to eat in a buck or two, right? No. Jesus manipulated that. How about, anybody remember what Jesus did with a tree? They're walking, you know, Jesus sort of points at a tree and there's no figs on the tree. And what does he do to it? Yeah, they came out the next day and just shrivels up. There's no figs on it. Or there's no, there no figs on it before. A fig is supposed to produce figs. A fig tree is supposed to produce figs. And when it didn't, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And what happened to it? You know? Um, now, our plants out in our backyard, we don't need to curse them at all. They just do that anyway, you know. I've got to tell you this. So this year I'm going out in the backyard. I'm seeing our tomato plants. It's all sprawled out across the ground, and they're not in cages or anything. And I'm like, what in the stink? I'll talk to Amy. She's like, I'm trying something new this year. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. But how did we do on tomatoes this year? It was all over. It was beautiful. We just our last tomatoes. Oh, tons of these gorgeous, delicious tomatoes. And I couldn't even mow back there because it was all starting to sprawl. At first, I tried to pick it up and mow underneath. Forget it. Let the grass grow, you know. <laughs> the best tomatoes and tons of them. No, I'm not sure I want to encourage you to let more tomato plants all sprawl across the lawn. There you go, yeah. Borderline evolution stuff, right? So, no, I don't go out there and curse the plants. They do it all on their own. But the point is that Jesus controlled nature. In order to control nature, he must have been God. Now, there's one last, or two last ones that I'll just highlight here briefly um, that have to do with people. Okay? Jesus healed the sick is one of them, right? You know, we could argue today, well, oh, yeah, but, you know, doctors and all that kind of stuff. But we just, when you look at the examples of what was found in the Old Te- or the New Testament, where Jesus looks at a lame man and says, get up and walk, and he walks. That's not a doctor doing anything, you know. When a blind man can't see and he's been blind since birth, and Jesus basically puts, spits on the ground, puts a little bit of dirt on it, rubs his eyes and says, go wash off, and now the guy can see. And so much so that the leaders around him are so puzzled and they, they try to get him to say, well, what, what, who, who did that? How did this happen? And they, he just, I don't know. He just did the eye thing, and now I can see. And they just, they're having all kinds of pro- There's something miraculous, and they recognize that there was something miraculous about it. But there's one that's probably more significant than anything else. One thing that Jesus did. Absolutely. He, he, he rose Lazarus from the dead. Let me ask you this. I don't care how good of a doctor you are. I don't care what kind of powers you think you may have. Has anybody here ever heard of a legitimate example of one man raising somebody else from the dead, aside from Jesus Christ? It doesn't happen. And it's never happened. And in order for Jesus to do that, he must be God because God is the giver of life and God is the taker of life. And even more significant than Lazarus was Jesus' own resurrection because Jesus himself said, I lay it down 
and I'm going to take it up again. The fact that Jesus Christ is responsible for raising himself from the dead doesn't mean he didn't have the active participation of the other two parts of the Godhead. But Jesus Christ said, I take it up again. Which means he's partly responsible for his own resurrection. Has to be God. There's no other question about it. How about another proof? That was proof six, by the way, that Jesus himself rose from the dead. Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection in John chapter 2. He predicted that these things, his resurrection and his death and resurrection, would be a sign to his enemies. His predictions were common knowledge. All those around him knew about it. In fact, remember what happened after Jesus had risen from the dead? Remember what the leaders did? They all got together and they basically um, wanted to spread some stories that, well, his disciples come and got him because they knew that he had prophesied those things beforehand. He also claimed that he would raise himself, John 10. You can look that up on your own if you want. So that sixth proof there is that Jesus' own resurrection is proof that he was God. Now there's one last one that I want to touch on here. And it's simply this. The claims made by other people. I think this one's important. What did those around him think? Did they think he was just sinless? Yes. They they thought he was sinless. But beyond that, those that were closest to him, those that interacted with him on a regular basis, claimed that he was exactly who he claimed to be, which was the Son of God, God himself. So let's go ahead and look at some of those things. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to label this one God, because God himself, the one who knew the Son better than anybody, actually made a declaration about his Son. And that's found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. We'll start in verse 16. It says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven, this is the Heavenly Father, God the Father, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we have God himself declaring that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How about somebody else? Turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We're down to verse 39, thereabouts. Remember the story of the centurion? This is the man who was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. He had participated in the crucifixion, was there throughout the process, saw all of the stuff happening around it, saw the way that Jesus behaved all the way up to the cross, watched him on the cross, watched him die on the cross. Then the centurion, verse 40, Then there were some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and James the Less, and Jose and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who 
came with him to Jerusalem. So we see this crowd around him of the women. If you look at uh, verse, I believe it's uh, 39, when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, right at the foot of the cross, saw the way that he breathed his last breath, this Roman centurion, no indication of his religious heritage in any way, but simply that he was a Roman, said this, truly, this man was the Son of God. So as this centurion watched this crucifixion, as he carried out the crucifixion, likely, at the very end looked at it and said, man, this certainly was God in flesh. That phrase, Son of God, means exactly that. That he was exactly God. So here we have this most uh, unlikely character, a Roman of all people, makes this pretty amazing claim about Jesus. How about um, John chapter 20, after his resurrection? John chapter 20. Think about this, guys. So, you've met this man, Jesus. He's amazing you. You think he's who he claims to be. He's a great teacher. You think that he's going to be the one that's going to save Israel from the Romans. You hang out with him for three years or so, and then all of a sudden he gets arrested. He gets taken to the cross, crucified, dies and disappears. Any of you guys, when you think through that, wonder how you might, what you might be thinking or feeling at that time? Having your world sort of shattered? And so there's a reason why you find somebody like Thomas here. What was Thomas's nickname? What do we, what do we refer to Thomas as? Anybody remember? What's that? Somebody said it. Yeah, doubting Thomas. And why did Thomas doubt? Well, Jesus showed up among all the apostles, and Thomas just, you know, he was down at Chipotle or something. He wasn't there in the room, and so he didn't see it. And so the disciples, though, are talking about it. And he basically puffs up his, no, no, unless I see him, if I don't stick my hands in those holes in his hands and his feet, you are not going to convince me that he rose from the dead. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm going to go have a conversation with Thomas. So I end up with John chapter 20. You go all the way down to verse 28. Let me turn to it. John chapter 20, verse 28. Let's do this, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving. In other words, stop believing. Stop not believing, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, and what? My God. My God. It was at that point that Thomas recognized Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was, which was God. Now, if Jesus hadn't made the declaration that he was God, if these men didn't think that Jesus was claiming to be God, then he wouldn't have responded this way. But he did, because it's who Jesus claimed to be, and so... Thomas actually recognized Jesus as who he said he was. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, we saw that John believed that Jesus was God in the flesh. In fact, in John chapter, or 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, he says this, this, meaning a reference to Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. What about the Apostle Paul? 
Paul also made a number of claims that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and God himself. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he said, This is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, 6, he said, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. Colossians 1.15, he says this about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning he existed prior to it. It's a funny way of saying it, but that's what it means. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Paul's declaration that Jesus Christ was God. He also makes a similar claim in Colossians chapter 2 where he said, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. Remember what he told his disciples. You see me, you see God the Father. Why? Because all the fullness of God dwells in me. Peter also made a similar claim, said our God and Savior Jesus Christ in 2 Peter. So what do we basically have here? What God has chosen to do for us is to provide us with a number of evidences that Jesus Christ was his son and exactly who he claimed to be. We've seen a number of them here. Seen that his birth represents that simple fact. He led a sinless life. He himself claimed to be God. He could control nature. He performed miracles. He rose from the dead. They also made, we have the claims of others. I think the one that I skipped there was the fifth proof, which was that he performed miracles. I'll let you guys look those verses up in your Bible. But things like changing water into wine, multiplying food, healing the lame, all those things, he definitely performed miracles. So, what do we do with this? Um, I'm going to leave this for yours. The walkers I see have, have uh, joined us. They're outside there. Um, knowing how to respond. Obviously, the reason we provide these truths to you is so that you can take these truths and you can apply them to some of the questions. So you'll see some of the questions that we have on the bottom of your, or in your outline there. Knowing how to respond. What if somebody says, Jesus isn't real, he's just a myth? Well, the proper way to answer that is, you just don't know your history. Now, do it in a loving and gracious way. But there's not a, there's not a, there's very few, I should say, historians that deny the existence of Jesus Christ. And there are people today, it's becoming more common, we saw that in the millennial generation, where fewer of the millennials believe that Jesus even really existed. They think he was a character made up. So the typical way we would respond to that is, but that doesn't match history. Almost every historian believes that he was a real person. But what about when they say things like, well, he was just a good man, he wasn't the son of God. That's where some of these proofs will come in, and you could take any one of these proofs. And talk about this. Well, if Jesus was just a good man and he wasn't God, then how in the world did he do all the miracles he did? How did he raise somebody from the dead? How did he change water into wine? Or if they say, well, he was a good man, but he wasn't sinless, then you can pull out some of the arguments that say, wait a minute, though. The people around him thought he was sinless. The people that knew him best, the people that lived back then, knew he was sinless. How can we say 2,000 years later that he wasn't when we can't see him? They thought he was. So you can take any one of these arguments and weave them in in a very gracious and kind way. And as I've said before, one of the things we need to remember is that it's not about winning the argument, guys, is it? It's about defending our faith, giving a reason for the hope that dwells within us. And what better way to do that than to talk about Jesus?